morning. Well, the reading from God's Word this morning is taken from Luke chapter 7, verse, starting at verse 36 and going through chapter 8, verse 3. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with his ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, is this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You give me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them away with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went through cities and villages, proclaiming the, and bringing the good news of the gospel of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anne. Um, good morning, everyone. It's really great to see you all here this morning. Um, this is the first time that I've preached since we've been back to one gathering. Uh, so it's, it's great to see all your faces here together at once and to look out at so many of you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Nick. I'm one of the elders here at Village. Um, if, like I know there are a few of you I haven't had the opportunity to, to meet properly yet while we've been at two gatherings, um, yeah, hopefully over the next few weeks we'll, we'll get a chance to set that right. Now, as I was preparing uh, to, to preach from this passage this week and, and sort of looking at this passage, I was briefly reminded of the TV show Come Dine With Me. Stick with me. Um, 
come down with me, I maybe wouldn't advise as the most enriching viewing experience. But around 10 years ago, when I was an undergraduate at Coleraine at university, it did have a certain quality of being an exceptional tool for procrastination. In your student house, if you're ever putting off working on a piece of coursework or, or studying for an exam, there was a fair chance that if you turned the TV on at any time in the day, you'd probably catch an episode of Come Down With Me. If you locked in, you'd get four episodes back to back and you'd watch all of them. But part of the appeal of this show was getting an insight and, and being able to watch how different people from different backgrounds and experiences engage with each other and interact with each other. You saw the best and worst of people. You saw the judgmentalism of some, and you saw that, that often what is going, under the sur going on under the surface of someone's life doesn't always match how they appear. And all of this would play out creating cringeworthy, awkward TV, and yet you'd keep watching. Now, in the scene that unfolds in these verses today, we're going to see all this and more. We're going to see Jesus cutting to the core of two very different people and exposing what's truly going on in their hearts. So let's make a start. Now, the account that we read about here in these verses this morning is only recorded in Luke's gospel. There are other accounts where Jesus is anointed by some of, some of this crowd that are following him, but these are likely to have been separate events to this one, which takes place here. And the first interesting thing that we see that is really unique about this event is that it's a Pharisee who has invited Jesus to his home. So we've seen elsewhere tax collectors and other sinners engaging with Jesus and inviting him to dine with them. But here a Pharisee has invited Jesus for a meal. Now Jesus would have been, as we've seen in the previous chapters, he would have been the, the, the preacher of the moment in Israel at this time. He'd been doing these miraculous acts and had said some pretty controversial things by this stage. He was gaining a reputation and the things that he was saying, including from the passage last week when he talks about John the Baptist, were grabbing the attention of the Pharisees. And so this Pharisee who we learn is called Simon invites him for dinner. We don't know exactly why or what his motivations were, were for doing this. We do know the Pharisees were still studying Jesus at this time. So it's possible that Simon had been appointed by the, the Pharisee council to do some digging or, or to, to create this plot to lure Jesus into some sort of entrapment. They're maybe saying, yeah, let's see what he says. We all want to know what Jesus is up to, but Simon, you're the soft touch. You do the dirty work. Or maybe Simon was genuinely curious about Jesus himself. But regardless of what his motivation was, it's more than likely that Jesus', Jesus own attendance at this banquet was probably the purpose for it taking place. And so Jesus accepts this invitation, an invitation to dine with someone who was part of the very group that would hate him more than anyone else. Now, as we look at the account and how it unfolds, we see that it's broken into two sections. Firstly, verses 36 to 39, where there's no dialogue, but the scene is set and a picture is painted of what takes place at this banquet. And then in verses 40 to 50, where we see the dialogue between Jesus and Simon and between Jesus and the woman who arrives as Jesus teaches from this parable of the two debtors. So firstly, let's look briefly at these descriptive verses. Let's try and understand exactly what's taking place in the context um, and, and just get our heads around this scene uh, that's about to play out. Now, the banquet itself would have been taking place in all likelihood in, in a, an outdoor courtyard. It would have been commonplace for individuals like Simon in their sort of social standing to have a certain standard of house, which would have featured an internal courtyard within the confines of their home and they'd have used this for entertaining. 
They have held lavish banquets with esteemed guests and teachers invited, almost as symbols of their status and their success. These events would have been semi-public, so you didn't, strictly speaking, need to be invited. And it would have been common for locals who weren't invited to walk in on the proceedings to sort of come and go and observe what was going on. It was almost the point of it. And as for the way the guests, as for the way the guests would have been assembled, I'm not going to try and demonstrate this fully. But sort of unlike at a, a typical family dinner setting, as we would imagine it, uh, the, the guests weren't sitting upright around a table, but instead were sort of reclined at a low table, as was the custom for these sort of extended banquet-style gatherings. Guests would have sort of reclined, leaning on their left elbow, so they could reach forward and and, and get some food to eat. Their feet, with sandals removed, would have been facing away from the table, and they would have been lying sort of reclined, packed in like sardines around this table, fanning away from it. Now, why this was the case, I'm not sure. Maybe it was common that by the end of such a time of feasting, um, you maybe wanted to be lying down. Um, I don't know. But it would have been expected that the conversations and the entertainment that was taking place at these events would have been enlightening or profound, and that these were entertaining occasions. But it's certain that nobody expected what was about to happen next. And so we see in verse 37, the arrival of an uninvited guest. Now, you didn't need to be invited to these kind of events, but this woman still very much wasn't welcome. She was a woman from the city who was known simply as a sinner. And when we read the, sinner, the word sinner today, we naturally think of sinner in that New, Test, New Testament, sort of Romans 3 context of all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here, this word has a very specific sort of cultural meaning in, in that context. Her designation as sinner probably meant that she was a prostitute or had had multiple husbands or was otherwise caught up in adultery. So Simon, in all of his sort of Phariseehood, was probably crawling inside himself at this point when he saw the woman, not just from his own disdain towards her because of who she was, but also for fear of his own reputation and, and what it would do to him to be associated with such a person. But despite this woman's reputation and despite her past, she had come to see Jesus. Now we can assume that she had probably heard Jesus before We've seen in the previous couple of chapters this great crowd that's beginning to follow Jesus as he travels and as he teaches in these different towns. And J.C. Ryle has wrote that it's possible that when you compare the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, this woman may very well have been present when Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" But regardless of what and where her prior contact with Jesus had been, it had changed her life she had experienced the reality and the blessing of his rest and his forgiveness. The woman had heard Jesus was there having dinner, and with great courage, she decided she was going to go and meet him. And she has with her this small flask of ointment or perfume, probably the most costly thing she owned, and something that many women would have carried around their necks in little vials at the time. She was prepared for exactly how despised she would be for what she was about to do, and yet she decided she wanted to come to Jesus, offering him what she had to honor him. Now, I think particularly when we're familiar with a story like this, and when we've maybe heard it growing up or, or heard it referenced frequently, 
we can almost hold a sort of sanitized or romanticized version of it. Like this scene played out exactly how it was meant to, exactly how the woman had intended. And while her anointing of Jesus was, was probably what she planned to do, the tears and the crying probably weren't part of the plan. She'd stirred up this courage to enter this place where there was probably quite a crowd gathered at this point. And as she walks in, you can imagine the atmosphere changing instantly. Straight away, she would have been noticed. She sees the looks she's drawing, the expressions on people's faces. She hears the sneers and the snide remarks. She's probably scanning the room for Jesus at this point, trying to see where he is. And in the middle of this moment, she breaks down and begins to weep. We don't know what in this sort of atmosphere was the triggering point for this. The scorn and disdain directed at her. Maybe it was the tears of joy at being in Jesus' presence and having the opportunity to honor him this way. Or maybe it was tears from being overwhelmed by the realization of the forgiveness of her sins. Or maybe all of these feelings at once. But she begins to weep. She was probably hoping she could have subtly came and went, honored her Lord and left without creating a fuss but all hope of that was gone at this point. And so she walks in and comes to stand behind Jesus, who, remember, would have been lying with his feet directed away from the table. Now, you can imagine by this stage, she's probably a bit of a blubbering, kind of snotty mess, really. Um, kind of picture it as like, one of, like when a toddler's taking those big sobs and can't even catch a breath in them. I don't know what first century makeup looked like, but the mascara probably would have been everywhere at this point. But as she reaches Jesus, the tears are rolling off her cheeks and they begin to land on Jesus' feet. We discover later on that Simon hadn't had the courtesy of offering Jesus for his feet to be washed, as would have been the cultural norm. But as her tears fall, they begin to create little spots and they begin to speckle the dirt and the dust on Jesus' feet. And they begin to wash it away. Now, she's completely off script at this point. She's probably completely flustered. She's thinking, what am I doing? This is a mess. I don't have a towel. And before she knows it, she's on her knees. And then she's letting her hair down. And she's wiping away the dirt with her tears. Now, things hadn't been bad enough when she lets her hair down. This was probably one of the most culturally shameful things a woman could do in public in this culture. And yet she continues, she begins to kiss Jesus' feet in this immense display of humility and submission and just sheer unbridled love and devotion. She's feeling and quite literally facing the scorn of the host and his guests. She knows she's despised. She can see the look she's getting and she hears what people are saying, all because of her sin And yet she had such a singular focus on being able to show her Savior the kind of love and devotion she thought he deserved that she carried on anyway. In the presence of her Savior and experiencing the delight of serving him this way, she becomes less concerned about those stares and those sneers. She takes the flask, she breaks it, and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. Only genuine love could have evoked such a display as this. Regardless of the level of contact she'd had with Jesus previously, she had experienced it in such a way before this event that he had changed her life to the point that love and devotion overflowed from it. 
And so she was determined, regardless of what anyone else thought, to show Jesus what he meant to her. Social acceptability, concern for reputation, self-preservation, all of it was gone because of the joy that was to be found in honoring her Savior. She was in love with her Savior, and in that moment, she worships Him with all of her heart, all of her soul, all of her mind, and all of her strength. So by this point, the wheels are well and truly off the dinner party. There is, as, as we view it today, this incredibly moving scene unfolding, but for Simon and the Pharisees, from their position of self-righteousness and as far as they were concerned, Jesus was just heaping condemnation on himself by allowing a woman, and a sinful woman at that, to engage with him this way. As far as they were concerned, he was undermining himself and everything that he had been saying by allowing this to happen. All conversations stopped. Everyone has their eyes glued to what's going on. And in verse 39, I think we get an insight into the mind of Simon and what he's thinking. I think this confirms that Simon's mind was already made up about Jesus, and he was just looking for things to confirm this. And so internally, he has this conversation with himself and says, if this man was a prophet, surely he would know who this woman is. Surely he would know she isn't worthy of him. Surely he would, he would know to not allow himself to be defiled by allowing her to continue what she's doing. Now, in the original Greek text, what Simon is saying, if he were a prophet, which he isn't, surely he would know this. So he's probably thinking, wait till I report back on this. Wait till the guys hear about this one. Now, this is more than a bit ridiculous because it didn't take for Jesus to be a prophet to know what this woman's story was. Our eldest daughter, Grace, likes to do this thing where she picks two toys in her hands and holds them out in front of her and wants me to guess. Sorry, she picks one toy, holds both hands out, and wants me to guess which hand the toy is in. She hasn't quite grasped that you need to pick something that your hand can actually conceal. So quite often I get a closed hand and a hand that's struggling to conceal something far bigger than her hand. Um, it doesn't take much for me to know with certainty which hand she's holding something in. And for Jesus, it didn't didn't take for him to be a prophet to know what this woman's story was. The whole room knew the kind of person this woman had been. And it was more than obvious when she walked in that she didn't fit this religious social mold. And so that, that sets the scene, that paints the picture, that brings us to the second part of this text where we see the dialogue unfold between Jesus and Simon. When the crowd hears Jesus' teaching from this parable, and when things get increasingly awkward and uncomfortable for the Pharisees. And as we work through this, this sort of dialogue, there are just a few points along the way that I want to draw our attention to that Jesus teaches us about his gospel. Now, Simon has just internally asked himself this ridiculous question. And by answering him directly, as we see from verse 39, we see Jesus not only confirming that he knew who the woman was, but he also knows the very mind and thoughts of Simon. In verse 40, Jesus speaks for the first time and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. I wonder at this point if Simon was remotely aware of sort of the, the storm that was about to hit him. He's been thinking up to this point, now this guy's no prophet, but Jesus is saying, Simon, let's have a bit of a chat here. I have something I want you to hear. So Simon says, say it, teacher, go on. 
And Simon, it seems, is almost thinking he's going to humor Jesus here. He's going to let this scene play out a little bit further for the entertainment of his guests. Let's let Jesus do his worst. And so Jesus tells a story from verse 41. Verse 41 reads, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii would have been equivalent to sort of a, a day's wages for a laborer. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, this is a simple parable, but Jesus asks Simon, which of them will love him more? And here we see Simon becoming a little bit indignant or reluctant, and he says, the one, I suppose, for whom he has canceled the larger debt. It's almost like Simon is maybe beginning to see where Jesus has taken this. Either that or he's just so far removed personally from the concept of forgiveness that the analogy is still lost on him. But Jesus continues and says, you have judged rightly. And he then turns to the woman in the scene and directly draws attention to her and draws Simon's attention to her. And Jesus begins to bring into focus the bigger picture of what's going on. Jesus is going to use this parable to expose Simon's heart and really show what is going on in the woman's heart. And this is the first thing I want us to see Jesus teaching about the gospel, and that is the offense of the gospel, the offense of the gospel. Now, by this point, it's probably gotten pretty quiet. You can probably hear a pin drop. The sneering and all the remarks have stopped. And for Simon, this banquet, which he thought was going to be so beneficial for his status and his standing in society, is quickly getting away from him. Now, we know that Jesus in this parable is pitching the Pharisee as the 50 denarii sinner against the 500 denarii sinner of the woman. But what we need to see here is that Jesus is actually dismantling the Pharisee's false belief that they are those who Jesus describes in Luke chapter 5 who aren't sick and aren't in need of a physician. Jesus isn't talking about Simon and the woman's comparative debt of sin, but instead their subjective sense or their awareness of that debt. Jesus isn't positioning the Pharisees as the righteous ones who do not need forgiveness. Jesus is explicit that there is a debt to be paid for both debtors. And so he's clarifying what he meant in Luke chapter 5, which I think we can read in this context as Jesus saying, I did not come for those who don't think they're sick. I did not come for those who think they're righteous. Jesus is saying to Simon, you've judged correctly, but you've missed the point. There are no little and large sinners. Jesus is saying here, we are all sinners, but there are those with little awareness of our sin, and there are those with great awareness of our sin and great awareness of our need for forgiveness. It's clear that Jesus doesn't rank sinners on a scale of better to worse. Sin, of course, does vary in, in many aspects, including the consequences that, that different sins have in this life. We've all sinned differently and in different ways. But all sin is equally deserving of God's judgment. In the economy of the gospel, it doesn't matter how much you can't pay. If you can't pay, you can't pay. So Jesus is saying, she may be regarded in a worldly sense as the 500 sinner, but you're still a sinner, Simon. And because you're trying to claim some sort of relative righteousness for yourself because of your perceived lesser sin, you've lost, the sight of the, you've lost sight of the fact that you still need a Savior. 
And then Jesus goes on and uses the example of this woman and her actions to make an example of Simon. In verses 44 to 46, we see three ways in which Simon did not show love and three ways that the woman did. If Simon had been courteous, a servant would have come when Jesus arrived and washed Jesus' feet. But not only was the woman more courteous toward Jesus, she was more honoring, more respectful, and more loving towards him. Simon says, she cried, sorry, Jesus says, she cried, you didn't. She washed, you didn't. She anointed, you didn't. She understands, you don't. All you failed to do, Simon, she has done and even more. And these displays of love and devotion are an indication of her sense of forgiveness. This woman understood her sin better than anyone else. And because of that, she understood her need of a savior better than Simon did. Brothers and sisters, and I say this with love, the gospel tells us we are all so much worse than we want to think we are. It's so tempting to try and claim little tokens of self-righteousness for ourselves and, and to be at ease with some of the forms of sin in our own lives. But pray that we'd never do this because when we do, we rob Jesus of his glory by trying to minimize how much we need him and by trying on our own strength to clean up the appearance of our own lives. We might not have the same story as this woman, but just as she was, we're all sinners and we all have a debt that we cannot pay ourselves. But then Jesus takes things a step further in verses 47 to 48. And it's here that I want us to see the assurance of the gospel. We've seen the offense of the gospel. I want us to now see the assurance of the gospel. Verse 47 reads, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Here, Jesus, without minimizing this woman's sins at all, declares that they're forgiven. Now, I want to clarify this quickly, that, that that for she loved much is not a causal for. Rather, it's evidential or it's effectual. So Jesus is not saying her sins are forgiven because she has loved much. He's saying her sins are forgiven for here is the evidence of this. Here is the love that comes from this forgiveness. Here is how you know her sins are forgiven. And he continues and clarifies that point at the end of verse 47 when he says that he who is forgiven loves, forgiven little, loves little. Forgiveness always precedes love. He then says to the woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And in this, the tense again is, is perfect tense. He's saying, your sins have been forgiven. See, this woman loved because she was forgiven. She wasn't forgiven because she loved her love was the result, not the cause of the cancellation of her debt. Christ cancels our debt as a way of awakening love in our hearts, not the other way around. Now, by this point, there's no mistaking for Simon that this parable is directed towards him and his fellow Pharisees. His guests probably aren't sure where to look. It's all gotten pretty awkward, and if it was today, we'd all be taking our phones out of our pockets to have something to look at. But Simon, in his self-righteousness, believed he was the smaller-scale sinner. 
Simon believed he was in need of a smaller dose of forgiveness. Simon believed his righteousness called for a smaller savior. There's no good people and bad people in the gospel. There are bad people, which is all of us, and there is Jesus. And this parable serves two purposes. It reminds us that we're indebted to Christ. Religious or irreligious, people far from God, people near to God, we're all debtors to grace. But it also shows us that the more mindful we are of our indebtedness, the more of God's grace we will know. We're in big trouble as Christians if we think we only need a little bit of God. The text says, he, is, he who is forgiven little loves little. John Bloom writes that this sentence reveals a mammoth truth for us. We will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. We will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. It's for this reason that often those who've lived the most overtly sinful lives before meeting Jesus become his most radical and fervent followers. Think of the Apostle Paul before his conversion. Think of John Newton, the hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace, which we still, we still sing today. John Newton, before he became a follower of Jesus, was a slave trader. And yet, late in life, he wrote, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Now, at this point, the party's done. Simon's probably going around telling the guests that he forgot to get dessert this time. And Jesus pretty much wraps up the event in verse 50 by turning for a last time to the woman and saying, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He's saying to the crowd with this, here is a woman who you all thought was as big an enemy of God as there was. And I'm telling her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She is the one who's declared righteous. She is the one who's forgiven. She is the one who's a friend of God, not you, Simon. She is the one you thought was dead, but she's actually alive. And why? Simply because this woman believed that she desperately needed the forgiveness that Jesus offers. What a glorious hope that is. You see, just, just as the offense of the gospel tells us we're all big sinners, we're all 500 denarii debtors, the assurance of the gospel tells us that we have a big Savior. Praise God we're not small sinners because there is no small Savior. We have a great Savior who in this event is making the most scandalous claim that any man has ever made, that he has the ability to forgive sins. Despite everything he knew about this woman, Jesus welcomed her acts of repentance and assured her of her salvation. The guests were shocked, and they asked questions of, who is this? Who even forgives sins? They'd been asking similar questions in Luke 5 when they, when they asked, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the Pharisees, they were right in one regard. God alone can forgive sins but they were blind to the crucial truth that Jesus was the very Son of God. 
And it was with that authority that he could make such an audacious claim, even to forgive sins. Brothers and sisters, there is great and glorious hope for all in the gospel. Regardless of our sin, regardless of our background, regardless of our past or our present, if you know you're a, you're a sinner with a great need, then praise the Lord because there is a great Savior. Thomas Watson once said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And what he meant by that was that until we see ourselves for who we truly are, apart from Christ, and until we consider the depth of our needs, the extent of our brokenness, and the totality of our depravity, and the condemnation we deserve, we won't see Christ for all that He truly is and all that He's truly done for us. But this woman, who there was declared a sinner forgiven, understood the great divide between Jesus and herself. And for this reason, she understood the value of her forgiveness, and she was determined to serve Him and to bless Him. And it's in that that I want us to see briefly the fruit of the gospel. J.C. Ryle once wrote that grateful love is the secret to doing much for Christ. True salvation, that is, that is real forgiveness and the love and humility that that brings is the only motivation that can produce effective work in God's kingdom. It's because of grace that we're forgiven. It's because of forgiveness that we love and it's because of love that we serve and that we do. And we say often in village that our doing for Jesus can't ever and, and must never outstrip our being with Jesus and our abiding with him. Our love for him and our marveling at him for who he is and all he's done for us can alone be the motivation for anything we want to do to serve him. If our serving comes from a posture of trying to keep up, an, keep up appearances or from misplaced faith in our own, our own performance, we'll inevitably become exhausted and disillusioned at trying to sustain those things, trying to sustain appearance and performance on our own strength. And at that point, we become in danger of falling into to Phariseeism as we see it in this, falling into judgmentalism of others falling into a self-righteousness that undermines any awareness we have of our need for a savior. Just as Simon didn't love Jesus because he didn't value the forgiveness that Jesus offered, he also didn't serve Jesus because he didn't love him. The woman, in contrast, loved much because she knew she was forgiven much. She loved because she knew what she had been saved from. And so she did all that Simon had not done and more she endured the scorn she faced while doing this, all because she loved her Lord. And if we look at the final verses of today's reading in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, we see Luke, who in general makes more reference to the women who follow Jesus than any of the gospel writers. We see him detail this list of women whose love and practical devotion to Jesus and his disciples as they traveled was such that, that Luke thought it, 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 it important enough to record and I don't think it's any coincidence that this chapter begins this way. I believe Luke is deliberately making a connection here that this group of very different women from very different backgrounds and social standings all acted and served in a similar way because they were united together by one thing, their love and devotion to Jesus. Like the woman from the section before them, they too were aware that from their different backgrounds and experiences, they had all been forgiven much. 
and they loved much and did much for Jesus because of this. In village today, there will never be more done for Christ until there is more love for Christ. You want to see our church doing more good works, denying ourselves more, overcoming our flesh more, serving each other in our city more, and, and being more effective and more bold in evangelism. We need to love Jesus more. Jesus' question to Simon was, who will love more? Loving Jesus needs to be our primary aim. Because when we neglect this aim, when we neglect time spent delighting in Jesus out of an awareness of what he saved us from, this is when we amble through our walk with him, trusting in our own wisdom and relying on our own strength. And this happens because we, we fundamentally don't think we need God all that much. This is like a functional sort of self-righteousness. But the more in tune we get with our own weakness and our own spiritual poverty, the more of Christ we'll experience. The more we'll treasure Him more and the more that we'll honor Him and give Him glory through what becomes joyful service to Him. And so if we struggle to see the fruit of the gospel in our lives this morning, maybe it's because we've never truly fully loved Christ. Maybe that's because we've never truly faced up to the kind of great sinner that we all are. Maybe as Spurgeon wrote, we think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. We have to be brought to an awareness of our sin because if we know we are great sinners, the glorious good news of the gospel is that we have a great Savior. We have a great Savior who is worthy of love and lavish devotion and service. So let's not be 2022 Pharisees more concerned with cleaning ourselves up on our own strength that we might make ourselves appear as lesser sinners, that we might look like we've got it all together. Let's not treat Jesus' forgiveness as a plaster for a stubbed toe, but let's see it for what it is, the rescuing of us from a blazing inferno of sin that we never could have escaped from ourselves. Let's confess and grieve that sin and then gaze in glory at our Savior who is perfect in all the ways that we are sinful. This is the call of the gospel in our lives, church. Let's embrace our need for him like never before, taking seriously the sin that he alone has the power to save us from, that we would love him more faithfully and more fully than before, and that from this posture we would become truly useful kingdom servants. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May we always be quick to accept this invitation, coming as we are with our sin, our past, our reputation, our failures, and hear the words that that woman heard. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, creator and sustainer of all things, thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God. God, you are good beyond what we can even begin to fathom. Thank you that in your son, Jesus, we have a great savior, that through his life, death, and resurrection, our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Thank you that there's no longer condemnation for those of us who are in Christ because of what he has achieved.
May we always gaze, marvel, and wonder at you, Jesus. May we never forget our need for you and your willingness to offer yourself for us. Holy Spirit, equip us, empower us, and embolden us to live lives as offerings worthy of Jesus. For it's in your precious name and for your glory we pray. Amen.